Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. I'm your host, Ben Ryman. I'm just really excited to, to, to have our, our guest on today. Um, uh, uh, today, I'm speaking with a, a fellow named Grant Bruno. Um, I'll let Grant kind of tell you more about himself, but uh, um, I found Grant uh, through, uh, you know, just searching the web, looking for uh, kind of more information on kind of autism and uh, and, and and in terms of kind of Indigenous and First Nations in Canada. Um, I was able to find a little bit of info, info in the States, but in Canada, there's not much out there. I know of uh, a lot of my audiences are behavior analysts. I know of three or four in the country, you know, out of, uh, you know, several thousand. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the, the knowledge around sort of autism from the indigenous perspective is, is pretty, uh, is pretty limited, at least for myself. And when I found out that Grant was doing some work in this area, I thought it'd be great to have him on. So welcome to the podcast. Yeah. Thank you, Ben. Good to be here. So maybe just, maybe you can just sort of, uh, start by kind of telling us sort of a, kind of how you came to sort of develop an interest in kind of autism um, uh, uh, and then be kind of how you came to actually be studying it. Yeah. So my story starts way before me though. So I'll start way, way back. So one thing in our communities that you'll see is that it's not really who you are, but whose you are. And what I mean by that is if you go to a community like mine, you, what you will find is that elders will ask you who your who your family is, who your grandparents are, your great grandparents, so that they can situate you. And then from there, they start building that relationship with you. And it's just a really good way to kind of find out where somebody's coming from and kind of where they're going as well. And so my story starts with, I would say, my my grandparents. So my great grandmother and my um, both my grandmothers maternally and paternally, as well as my mom, all attended residential school. And it was the Hobima Residential School, which is located in central Alberta. Now the community is known as Muscogees, but this residential school is actually one of the largest residential schools in all of Canada. And mm. so those experiences that they passed down included a lot of trauma, but they've also included a lot of you know intergenerational resiliency, wisdom, and things of that nature, because... One thing that I find about our communities and our families and our and the individuals in our communities is we are often, we have a lot of trauma, but at the same time, there's a lot of good things happening as well. And so hmm. their stories and how they kind of operate in life led to me. Um, so my, my mom was an early childhood educator for 46 years. She hmm. really is the backbone of what allows me to do what I do, um, as well as my dad. So my dad was an RCMP for 26 years in Musquatchies hmm. and both of them showing me that, guess what, you can take your experiences, uh, negative, uh, toxic, dysfunctional, and you can turn them into something good. And so I've really tried to take that more strength-based approach in all of my work, as well as my own personal life. And so my educational journey really started when I had my twin boys, who are 12 years old now. I had a decision. I was really young. I was 22 years old. And I had a decision to either start you know, my schooling or go work in the oil patch in northern Alberta. And I felt it was really, for me, I really did not want to be away from my family for weeks at a time. I fully embraced my role as a father. I absolutely love being a father. It's something that I, I get excited about to see my children in the mornings and then get them to school and 
see them after school. It's my favorite thing, my favorite role by far. And so I chose the education route. So I started, um, I started school at Red Deer College. I did two years there. Then I transferred to the University of Alberta, where I finished a bachelor's of Native studies. And then from there, I was kind of like, okay, I still need to be a provider. And I understood that with a bachelor's, uh, it's just the opportunities weren't there. And so my research really started uh, in my last year of my undergrad. And I started doing community-based work in Muscogee's around maternal health. And that was my first real kind of experience with anything research-related. I didn't understand research. I didn't know. I didn't understand the impact or the power of research. And I just started as a summer student and it kind of evolved from there. And so I had a really good conversation with my then supervisor. He's like, you know, uh, we would love to have you on this program and this project as a master student. And I was able to develop my own kind of project through that. And I worked with healthcare providers and seeing how they supported uh, mothers and mothers to be in the community. And then I took a couple of years off. I worked in community. And this is when my oldest was diagnosed. So just as I was mm. finishing my master's and what I tried to do is I tried to go and find as much information on it as I can. So now I've got this kind of skill set as a researcher to really try and deep, dive deep into the literature, into the research. Mm. And what I found was that there's very little literature in this area. Um, to date, I think I've only really found, this is specific to Canada, uh, about mm maybe 20 articles that are peer-reviewed that actually explore mm. um, autism in Indigenous communities within Canada. And that mm. is hugely problematic for me uh, because as parents, as service providers, as researchers, when you go and try and find information on how to support you know, Indigenous families, you're not going to find much, yes. unfortunately. Right. And so now that I'm kind of, I'm, I'm learning about the lack of research here, and then very like serendipitously, I was talking with my master supervisor and she, and I was like, what, I don't know what I could do after this, right? Like, what are some, some of the opportunities? And she, she had been on a, a board with my current supervisor, uh, Dr. Lonnie Zweigenbaum. And she kind of introduced, she didn't introduce me. She said, Grant, I highly recommend you go introduce yourself. And that's what I did. I just emailed him and mm. we got along really well, right from the very beginning. He's. Mm -hmm. A great supervisor, a great mentor. I, you know, I consider him a friend now. Um, mm -hmm. And then he introduced me to my co-supervisor, Dr. David Nicholas. And so now I'm doing a, I'm a second year PhD student in medical sciences in the Department of Pediatrics. And I'm really excited about the opportunities in front of me. But at the same time, it's a little disheartening, right? Because I feel like there's so much work that needs to be done. And I'm just one person. Uh, and I just really want to, you know, make the world a better place for my children. But I know that within that work, I'm trying to make the world a better place for a lot of autistic children in First Nations mm -hmm. communities because there is obviously like a severe lack of services. Uh, there are jurisdictional disputes. There are a, a number of things that I, I think we'll try and unpack here as this conversation goes on. But yeah. that's kind of my journey towards autism. So I'm a father, four children. My oldest, who's a twin, uh, he's on the spectrum. And then my seven-year-old, um, he's on a spectrum as well. And of course, their autisms are very different, right? So so the oldest, his autism is more like, a, he has a lot of sensory challenges. He can't go into, hmm. you know, he can't go into like really hot spaces and he can't, and he gets overwhelmed with a lot of activity, like a lot of social activity. But other than mm -hmm. that, he manages well, like academically, he's, you know, probably above average than his peers. And he absolutely 
He's probably one of the funniest children I've ever met. He's very literal, which I know is one mm. of the quote unquote stereotypes. But at sure. the same time, I kind of see that and I take a more cultural lens, which I know we'll touch on later too, is mm. if you ever look at the Cree language or the Nehiawin, um, it's a very literal language too. What you see is what you get. And so I feel that his worldview fits in better with the Cree worldview than and even mine, right? And and then there's my seven-year-old. My seven-year-old has uh, different challenges, right? So he he doesn't really speak that much verbally. He says one to three words at a time. And right now we're just really trying to get him those supports that uh, are going to allow him to be the person that he wants to be, really. And so hmm. looking at it at a more from a more cultural perspective, we're not trying to change him. We're not trying to make him quote unquote normal. We want him to fully embrace who he is. And then from there, we'll get him the sports that we need for him. So that's, that's interesting. So and, and how, sorry, how old was your old eldest when, when, when he was diagnosed? Yeah. So because his autism wasn't as visible, I found mm. we didn't really learn until he was in grade two. Mm. And so it was because he was having some behavioral challenges in school, yep. right? He was getting overwhelmed yep. in music class. He was getting overwhelmed um, in different social settings. And so the school recommended that we would get him an assessment, which is what we signed mm. up for. And so mm -hmm. we started that process when he was in late grade two, but it, of course it took a year. So it was like at the end of grade two or end of grade, uh, sorry, the process started in grade one, but we didn't get anything mm -hmm. uh, diagnosed until grade two. Mm -hmm. And then, and so, and so was he diagnosed before your youngest, your younger, your seven-year-old, sorry? Yeah. So they're diagnosed within like a, a year, year and a half. So with mm -hmm. Anders, he wasn't talking by like two and a half, three. And so I, it was up to me really to really push. And I, so I put him on the waiting list for a diagnosis yep. within in Edmonton. And then from yep. there, we went and had a conversation with his pediatrician who kind of by then was really worried or concerned that he was autistic. And she put a, a, a recommendation or a, a reference in for us at the local hospital. And then That's from right. there, we were able to do the full day assessment. Um, and he was like, Three and a half, almost four, I think, when he mm -hmm. got us diagnosed. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You know, something you said, and I'm sure we'll we'll touch on this some more as we kind of dig into it a bit. But something you said early on that really kind of struck me, which I think is important for folks. Um, you know, when 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 kind of folks that sort of you know identify as 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 sort of as a settler kind of colonizer like myself. Um, we're hearing a lot about residential schools these days, uh, you know, which is important, of course. And we're hearing a lot about um, um, the, the the intergenerational trauma piece, um, and, and I think that's being being talked about a lot, which is you know also really important. But I think what it's done for for at least at least from my perspective, I think it's, it, it, it wasn't until you said this that it, it sort of created it's created a bit of this sort of it reminds me of of uh, of, of the conversation of conversations I've had with some of my my black colleagues in that the, the, the history that we're hearing about, we only hear about sort of all the bad stuff, the slavery and, and, uh, and, and certainly, and, and, you know, and the Jim Crow and all, all sort of the negative things associated with that. But, but there's a whole other story of, of sort of the, the amazing cultures 
that that you know not only right now of course right now but also the amazing cultures where the, the, these these folks kind of originated from in africa sort of sort of pre 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 slavery pre colonization where they had rich rich cultures and and really uh, sort of lots of really amazing things that were kind of going on and and folks don't really hear about that they just kind of hear about the bad stuff and so similar to here when you talk about we talk about inter- intergenerational trauma and then i heard you say there's also this intergenerational resiliency and intergenerational wisdom and i think this is i think this is something really important for you know for for us to sort of you know be be thinking about that that you know it, it's not just trauma that's getting passed down from generation to generation with 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 indigenous folks no for sure so i would argue that there is what's known as a indigenous deficit discourse that happens in multiple areas right so the examples i like using is definitely media so if you were to go and google either hobima or muscogees which is the same community what Mm. would you you would find is that there's for the national media or for the bigger media outlets you'll find a lot of Mm. negative headlines right and Mm. so what this does is it actually perpetuates stereotypes it Mm -hmm. allows it justifies people's discrimination as well because there's this idea or this belief that indigenous peoples are doing this to themselves. And so mm. this indigenous deficit discourse doesn't really get into, you know, the strengths and it doesn't get into mm-hmm. the real history of what's going on within Canada, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So as far as I know, the residential schools, they weren't schools, they were institutions. These children were institutionalized. They were literally prisoners. They were taken yes. from their homes and they were put into these these uh, these buildings and there was not mm-hmm. that much education happening. These schools, these children, they had to work and survive. They had to mm-hmm. clean. They had to you know, prepare food. They had to do all these other things away from their education. Mm-hmm. And so all of these children being institutionalized. And the other thing a lot of people don't talk about when it comes to residential schools is that the fact that they were a money-making venture for churches. At the end of the mm. day, the more enrollments you had, the more money you were able to bring in. And the more money you were able to bring in, the more you could pay yourself. And so these churches, mm. whether it's the Protestant, Catholic, or I think even the United Church, they yep. all had the financial goal at the end of the day. And so they were cutting corners as much as they could at the expense mm-hmm. of the children, right? So they got paid. Wow. That, that Those funds yeah. didn't make it down. And so... There's all these different kind of different ha- things that are happening within just this residential school, right? And mm-hmm. and then this indigenous deficit discourse, you see it in education, you see it in health. And the example I like using in health is when medical students are going through their own education process, they're reading journal articles that are often deficit focused. And so they're reading about mm. all the bad things that are happening in our communities. And then so what happens yes. is they take that knowledge and then they try and apply it when they come to community and it just further reinforces stereotypes with them. And you'll see mm. this quite a bit with diagnosis. And that's ex- and so what happens is you have all this negative information as negative beliefs about indigenous people. Mm. And so mm. there is more a more likely of a chance for them to misdiagnose autism as FASD. And that happens a lot, too. So there's a lot of misdiagnosis that happens because of the wow. training and education. And it doesn't start in medical school. It starts in elementary. It starts in secondary. And it's not just the education, but the lack of education, right? So I know a lot of mm-hmm. Canadians who didn't learn about 
residential schools until they became adults. Yep. And you got to ask yourself, why is that? Why didn't the government who controls the curriculum want Canadians to know about residential schools? Mm-hmm. And I'll leave it up to you to make sense out of that. I know exactly what <laughs> I know exactly for myself what that means. But like there is so there's a lack of education. There's misinformation. Mm-hmm. And then the this type of like approach really it justifies colonial attitudes towards indigenous people as this mm-hmm. is our fault. We're inherently just this way. And all these different, I call them colonial myths. And some of the other mm. colonial myths that I talk about are, you know, we don't pay taxes. I pay taxes all the time. Mm. Uh, we get free education. Mm. I don't get free education. I have to take loans out. You know, there's all these different mm. things that justify negative attitudes, beliefs, and behavior towards Indigenous peoples right across Canada. And I'm just here to, you know, shed a light on all that because mm-hmm. you got to understand that the Canadian government, the federal government, has spent billions of dollars to make sure that we stay oppressed. Tens of billions, mm-hmm. I would say. You know, the mm-hmm. child family services. Again, that's the new residential school. Billions of dollars yep. are spent there every year. Education. You know, uh, teachers in my community used to get paid 20 to 30% less than teachers who worked off reserve. Um, wow. Medical for um, physicians. physicians. Physicians get paid a fraction of what they would if they work on reserve compared to off reserve. And so we have entire systems built to keep us marginalized, keep us oppressed. And so now it's just a matter of, okay, let's build awareness around this and let's get, mm-hmm. because we need allies, right? We need people mm-hmm. going who are going to you know, share this kind of knowledge and be like, you know what? The federal government should be held responsible. But mm-hmm. as Indigenous peoples, unfortunately, it is our responsibility to get us out of this with as much support as we can get from good allies. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's uh, that's a lot of really kind of mind blowing stuff. I mean, just the 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 suppression of information alone by the government is 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 nutty. But little, but the but the but the fact that all these systems still exist and they're just framed in a different way, you know. The the I've heard you know many conversation about you know. Like I can understand sort of in certainly in certain circumstances why a child may be not safe in a home. And and I think that's that's fair. But but the idea that then you, that you then have to, you know, and may, even then that may not be fair, of course, uh, because of because of sort of stereotypes and assumptions. But but in the end, you know, you, you could easily, you know, take that child and just, you know, give them to a different family member or put it or, 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 or to a neighbor sort of in, in, in the first nation. But the idea that you have to pull them out of their community and, and, you know, sometimes bring them to another province or, you know, another part of the country or whatever is, is just, uh, you know, you're right. It's, I mean, it's, it's just, it's just residential schools 3.0, right? Yeah. So I used to be a, I used to believe that the systems were broken, right? I used to think like, Oh, we could fix these things. You know, we need to be able to have mm. this we need political will. And we people who are in decision-making uh, roles to help us fix the system. I'm coming to a new conclusion that the systems aren't broken. The systems are doing exactly what they're designed to do. Mm-hmm. And these systems are designed to keep Indigenous people oppressed, marginalized. Yes. They're designed to keep us in survival mode so we can't fight back. So we can't start you know, shedding light on all the atrocities that still happen. Because guess what? Surviving that day is more important than fighting back. 
you know, when you're scrambling mm-hmm. for housing, when you're, you have a boil water advisory and, you know, you have critical infrastructure that's missing in your community and you don't, you can't even get Wi-Fi. Those become mm-hmm. daily survival, uh, like things that you need to do, because if you don't do yeah. that and you spend time fighting back against the system, you're going to lose out, right? You're going to not survive then pretty much. And so, and then just to kind of even touch on this indigenous deficit discourse, there's the same thing happening mm-hmm. within autism, right? So mm-hmm. autism is often viewed as a deficit. And yes. I've been to autism conferences and different symposiums. And what I've mm-hmm. learned, and I, I've been to indigenous health conferences, and at indigenous mm-hmm. health conferences, you're often othered. You're seen as different and different is bad, right? Mm. And so the same thing happens with autism conferences. I can't imagine being autistic and then going to one of these conferences and just being told mm-hmm. over and over again how we need to fix you, how you're yes. you're this person that needs to be quote unquote normal. We gotta yes. you know get in there and we gotta treat you like a disease. And that yes. to me is hugely problematic because that attitude and that that discourse. That causes harm. That causes yes. people to think about suicidal ideation. That causes people to lose self-esteem. That causes people to, you know, think that, oh, I'm different. So there must be something wrong with me because everybody's saying that something's wrong with me. And so what I, I'm at the really unique kind of intersection of both indigenous health and autism research. And mm-hmm. I'm seeing a lot of similarities, but I'm also seeing that guess what? There are solutions that we have learned as indigenous peoples, because I believe we've been doing this a lot longer that we can share Mm -hmm. with the autism community. And there's so much potential and opportunity for collaboration, for shared learning, shared experiences that I think Mm -hmm. would really go a long way for both. And then, you know, people within the autism community can share as well, because I think when you have them come together in a really good, healthy way and you build those relationships, like you're going to get better results. Yes, yes. No, that makes a lot of sense. And that's maybe you can kind of touch on a point we talked about the last time we met. Because you, know, you, you bring all, all, I got a, lot of, a lot of thoughts in my head here. I mean, I don't want to digress too much on sort of the, 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 the autistic reform piece, but as far as services and whatnot, but but you're 100 percent right that they're 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 aligned. They both have that kind of deficit sort of perspective. I mean, even even from sort of the beginning of diagnosis, when you know many families are just told it it starts with "I'm sorry," right? I, I apologize, but your your child has autism, and you know you're you're in for you're in for a rough haul. And you know, sort of it sort of starts from day one quite often with that sort of deficit approach. And there really has been a, a big movement of late. Um, um, in terms of, you know, kind of uh, reforming sort of services and, you know, uh, nothing about us without us as far as, you know, autistic folk being included in sort of kind of every level of thing. And, and, and that kind of comes out of this kind of neurodiversity movement, which I think was the, the term was kind of coined in the 90s. Uh, but I'm curious, sort of, as you as you sort of touched on a little bit, how 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 kind of how does neurodiversity, sort of this concept of neurodiversity, um, you know, mesh with sort of in, indigenous history and the indigenous perspective? It's different, isn't it? If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, 
you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com and go to the CBI store and click on CEUs. The first secret word is circle. Yeah, for sure. So before I get into that, I'll touch mm. on the diagnosis, the diagnosis as a parent, right? So I was oh, that sure. parent where my heart sank. And my heart sank because of all the misinformation that I got on autism. That was mm -hmm. all Western. I had all this Western information that I was like, autism is a, a disease. Autism is bad. Autism is this horrible thing that's going to ruin your life. Mm -hmm. And my heart mm -hmm. sank. But over the years, mm -hmm. and as I've been able to connect with traditional knowledge keepers, with elders, with community members, what I'm mm -hmm. learning that if I were to have the Cree approach, the Nehiao approach to autism, my heart would not have sank. Because in our communities, mm. um, the word we use for autism, and, and this will get more into neurodiversity in a second, but it's pitotetum, which translates as he or she thinks differently. It's not a disorder. It's not something that you got to fix. It's not something that you have to treat. First and foremost, mm. it's just that individual, that child, has to this just thinks differently. And so for mm. me, what I've taken out of that is that it's a much more neutral approach, right? It's like, it's not inherently bad. It's not inherently good. It's just something that you can accept and, and accept mm -hmm. unconditionally as well. And so if mm -hmm. I had that knowledge, then my heart wouldn't have sank. Mm -hmm. It would have been like, okay, let's, let's get to work. All right. And mm -hmm. so for me, what I, what I'm learning is that, so the Western approach to autism is let's do the therapies and then let's accept the child. Whereas in our communities, mm -hmm. it's let's accept the child and let's get the therapies put in place because we don't even have those, but the acceptance part is working. And so the challenge we have is getting those therapies in place. And so when you're talking about, you know, neurodiversity, that word, pipotetum, is, is something we've been practicing for hundreds of years. So I'll, right mm -hmm. now there's this idea that neuro, the neurodiversity movement started in the 90s. And that is a very mm -hmm. whitewashed thing. Mm -hmm. It's very colonial, mm -hmm. right? So I don't mind mm -hmm. if we share this space of neurodiversity. But you got to give mm -hmm. credit where credit's due. Our communities have been practicing neurodiversity and acceptance for hundreds of years, whether it's right. ADHD, whether it's autism or whatever else. Yes. Um, and so what I'm learning that was as well is that our communities, the indigenous communities, First Nations, uh, specifically for me, the Cree community, really has a lot of knowledge and experience that needs to be shared. So mm -hmm. if we were to practice neurodiversity since we've been practicing it, I think autism and the health outcomes around autism would be much better. Mm -hmm. I also, and this is the other thing, and not to digress too much, our elders no, and our traditional yeah. knowledge keepers in the 1800s were talking about climate change. They knew hmm. then that something bad was coming because of the amount of mm -hmm. extraction, the amount of greed, mm -hmm. the amount of people just take, 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 take. Mm -hmm. Whereas our worldview, you know, we really emphasize relationships, relationships to each other, relationships to ourselves, relationships to the land, relationships to the mm -hmm. water. And so trying to live mm -hmm. in those relationships and respecting and honor those relationships. And then so I feel like there's so much people like the Western kind of approach to things could mm -hmm. use a lot of indigenous input and let and should like so if anything's climate change related, it should be indigenous led or at least in full mm -hmm. partnership. Right. Because mm -hmm. we were doing this for thousands of years. Yes. And so the thing is, is like, how do we get this knowledge here, make sure it's being respected, but we're able to share it and make things better place for mm -hmm. everybody, right? Whether it's neurodiversity mm -hmm. or whatever else. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I definitely I see that parallel, I, and then, then not a digression at all. I mean, that's uh, yeah, exactly. If we uh, our, our our sort of view of neurodiversity, our view of climate change, our view of sort of a lot of things that are going on in this world, you know, is is very very sort of whitewashed, as you say. I mean, I think it's a great term for it. I mean, it, it's. We we th- we th- we think we've come up with all these ideas ourselves, but 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 you know, uh, in- indigenous folks have been have been have been working on and dealing with and 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 essentially preventing climate change for you know hundreds and thousands of years, and and then and 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 then have watched the world sort of go through all these different phases and and whatnot, and have been able to to kind of kind of do that piece. So that makes a lot of sense. And then in terms of the neurodiversity piece, well, again, you know if you know, if we were if we were paying attention, you know, um, you know, we 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 we'd be we'd be hundreds of years ahead of the game. And so I think you're right. I think we're really we're really we're really coming at this from all the wrong angles. And I agree. It's like, you know, as a parent, every day I'm, I got to ask myself, like, how am I going to be a better parent? And that's really mm. I try and keep it as simple as I can. It's never mm-hmm. it's never me like, OK, I'm going to change the world for all autistic people because that's a it's unrealistic. And B, I wouldn't be being like myself then. Right. So one thing that I've always tried to do within my work, within my role as a dad and within all my relationships is just try and keep it as simple as we can. What can I do today? Whether it's challenging, you know, those attitudes around ableism, like when mm-hmm. people use the R word, which I'm sure most people on this podcast listening right now know what it is. I won't even say it. Mm-hmm. If I have family mm-hmm. saying that that word, I'll challenge them, you know, and I'll mm-hmm. use it as not a, I'm not going to attack them. I'm not going to put them down. I'm not going to even try and make them feel bad about it. But my approach is always like, how do I make, how do I turn this into a teachable moment for my family, my friends? Mm-hmm. And I'm trying mm-hmm. to do the same thing around, you know, sexism, around racism mm-hmm. and all these isms, right? Because it's not okay. It's, uh, it's not okay, but it's not enough to be not ableist, you have to be anti-ableist, right? You have to challenge other yes. people within your circle. It's not enough to be not racist, you have to be anti-racist, right? It's mm. not enough to be not sexist, you have to be anti-sexist because that's when mm. you're going to start seeing change. And if you're just mm. talking about things all the time and without any action, it's performative. And the example I like using mm. here is the land acknowledgements. Don't get me wrong, it's mm-hmm. good to build awareness, that's great. Sure. But if your land acknowledgement doesn't, is not followed up with action, then it's performative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, yeah, that, that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's really good. Um, and, and, and it's certainly in terms of the land acknowledgement piece, it's something I've, I've already learned quite a bit about and I definitely started on my road there as, as very performative in my land acknowledgements and only recently have actually been able to, as you say, action some items. I was lucky enough, uh, actually, just a couple couple days ago, to uh, uh, be able to sit in a circle and listen to two uh, indigenous brothers from our our local First Nation um, came over to Texada and and so kind of them to do it. Uh, but they they gave us the almost the complete. Well, obviously not the complete, but they gave us a, a wonderful summary of, of 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 the indigenous history of our island. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's really, it's really just been a game changer for me as far as, um, kind of my perspective on everything from everything from the mountain that I look out my window every day is, is like a, 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 a really 
powerful spiritual place for a lot of the community members. You know, to me, it's just a mountain that's sitting over there. Uh, you know, uh, the, the idea, the fact that I discovered that the neighbor down the road found found a burial site in this property, and that and then in fact, it's quite likely that all the houses on my street are are on top of burial sites, and that obviously, you know, changes a whole lot of perspective. Um, uh, there, there's there's a, a a myth of apparently of four thousand years ago of of uh, and forgive me for digressing um, of of uh, of uh, the the Talaman folk seeing watching the island um, rise over the water um, and and everyone just you know sort of you know dismissed that as as you know mythical hooey or whatever. But it's actually a fact. There was an actual earthquake at that time, and and as we know from sort of um, sort of the earthquakes and uh, recent earthquakes, for example, in New Zealand, uh, we've seen land rise 20, 30 feet in a matter of seconds, and and that's what folks saw. There were there, there was a big earthquake, and 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 that's all in that oral history. And it, anyway, it just it goes on, and I'm, I've got a lot lot more digging in to do. Um, I sort of digress from uh, land acknowledgments, but I really understand. I'm starting to understand sort of. You know this this performative slash, you know, uh, action piece, and I, and I really like how you. I, we've heard a lot from I think certainly with with George Floyd and whatnot. Um, you know, there's a lot more talk about sort of anti-racism and anti-racist activities, and how you you can you can't be not a racist um, because if you're not doing anything about it, you're still a racist. Um, and I haven't heard it until you've said it. I haven't heard that anti-applied to all these other isms, and it really makes a lot of sense. Yeah, for sure, it becomes one of those things that we need. I think we really need to learn how to lean into discomfort. And what I mean is that mm. my work within Indigenous health the word racism comes up quite a bit. And what I find is sure. that people usually shut down, right? They get defensive, they get entrenched yep. because the word racism evokes a lot of uncomfortable feelings, feelings, you know, of guilt, mm -hmm. of shame, of like, oh, I didn't, I wasn't a part of that. So why would I feel guilty? Or why would, you know, I didn't benefit from, you know, stolen land or, and all these different excuses, right? But one thing that I've tried to do in my own life is really lean into the discomfort. What is that discomfort mm. trying to teach you? Uh, mm. And how are you navigating it? Are you learning from it? Or are you just simply shutting down and cutting everybody off around you? And unfortunately, that's what, what happens. And you see this quite a bit in social media is people are not talking anymore. They're not connecting. And it's creating huge amounts of division. And mm -hmm. so I know with your podcast, there's quite a bit of service providers. And my work with health providers during my master's, what I learned is that there are a lot of people who want the opportunities they just don't know how to get into the community right and you usually need that mm -hmm. one person to kind of you know to build off of their relationships yes but what else you need to do is you need to really prioritize relationships so in my community we there's a legal tradition it's called Lakotawin, and that's basically the law of relationships and i talked mm. about this earlier it's our relationships to each other the land and everything else Yes. And so when you are wanting to build those connections in community and do work in community, you have to prioritize the relationships, not only building the relationships, but maintaining them as well. Because at some point, mm. the honeymoon phase will be over and then, then the real work mm. needs to begin. And the mm -hmm. other thing I learned from these healthcare providers is they had to deal with their own internal racism. And they were really honest about that, which I'm really grateful for. So when they would come mm. to community, they would think racist thoughts 
Mm. And it was like automatic because all remember I talked about the lack of information and the education systems and how that influences mm-hmm. your day to day life later on. Mm-hmm. All of that was coming out. So, so what they have to do is really just be really mindful of like, okay, this is a thought. This thought, thinking a racist thought doesn't make you a bad person. It just means you've been mm-hmm. conditioned in a certain way. But how do you yeah. deal with that thought? Do you act out on it? Do you allow it to put you in this negative state? Do you allow it to evoke all these negative emotions? Or do you mm-hmm. just manage that thought in like a really healthy way? And do, do you challenge mm-hmm. these types of thoughts as well? Mm-hmm. So when you're working with families and a family shows up and there's just like eight kids, they're living in poverty, single mom, can barely afford you know food. You're going to think like, why doesn't this mom just get her, get it together? And you got to mm-hmm. understand where that mom's coming from. She's coming from residential school. She's coming from mm-hmm. poverty. She's coming from the Indian Act. She's coming from all of these things that are negatively influencing her up to that moment. Mm-hmm. And so one thing I try and tell people is walk a mile in her moccasins, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine if you were carrying as much trauma as her. Imagine if you, you know, you lost family to suicide, to addiction yeah. and all these things. Cause guess what? All of us are dealing with it in our communities. There's not one person who isn't traumatized. I I've been affected by everything from addiction to suicide, to, everything else and in between. Mm. And some of our families, unfortunately, just they haven't been equipped to cope. Mm-hmm. And they haven't been equipped to cope because residential schools took that away. They took away the culture, the language. They weren't, these children were not parented, so they weren't able to pass parenting skills on. Mm. And so just really trying to come at the work with a really, that really unconditional compassion but also being able to understand exactly where they're coming from. And when you put those two together, you're going to get better results. You're going to be able to connect better. You're going to be able yeah. to understand exactly the full context of what's happening. And you're going to learn a lot more because they're going to share a lot more. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have gone into those situations with that bias and that assumption. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I still have in my head your, 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 your comment earlier about the, the misdiagnosing of FASD, uh, because I mean, this is a, you know, uh, for sure an assumption that I've, I've had in the past of, you know, that, that FASD is rampant in sort of every indigenous family and, and so on and so forth. Um, um, and, and that, you know, if you, you know, and, uh, and I can totally see, and in fact, I, I worked with a fella that actually got the FASD and the, uh, the autism diagnosis. And I, I'm pretty sure he got the FASD diagnosis first. Um, um, and sort of just hang and, and now hangs on to that for the rest of his life. Uh, you know, I think that's probably another piece is that with that misdiagnosis piece is that, uh, you know, even if they finally do get the autism diagnosis, they probably don't lose the FASD diagnosis. Is that, is that probably the case too? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. I don't really. Yeah. yeah Unfortunately, yeah. one of the things is FASD. I know if I were to try and include that into my research, I would get overwhelmed, yeah. unfortunately. Yes, absolutely. And so my focus yeah. is on ASD. But what I will say about that is that if you were to look at the literature, the peer-reviewed research mm-hmm. within both yeah. FASD and ASD, there yeah. are thousands of articles on FASD indigenous communities in Canada. And there are, like I mm. said, there are maybe 20 on ASD. So right there, you can also see the mm. discrepancy between the two. Yes. And then, yes. so the misdiagnosis is just a follow-up to that. Yes. It's just another outcome of these, these systems being put in place to 
really, I think, keep these parents, right? So what happens when they get an mm -hmm. FASD diagnosis is the, the blame or the shame is put back onto the parent. Yes, Whereas ASD is not the fault of the parent, right? Yes. And so, yes. and then that get, and then you have to get into like um, funding. What kind of funding yep. mechanisms can you access then? Um, that's what I was and thinking. And so yeah. there's a lot of different things that happen within that that are, it gets very complex. I'm not the mm -hmm. expert on the area, so I won't get into it too no. far. But what I've learned is that even within ASD, parents still feel like it's their fault in our community because there's just a lack of education mm -hmm. and there's lack of awareness around what autism is. And a lot of our parents are dealing with the same things I dealt with when my child was first diagnosed, right? Yeah. And so there's, I would argue, unfortunately, like the reserve is not a friendly place with disabilities. And I, I hate mm. saying that, but it's, it's the truth. One thing I don't ever want to do is romanticize exactly the realities of what it means to have a disability in our communities. It's tough. Mm. And so what happens is families end up having to leave. And so what happens within that is that families leave the reserve to go get better supports and services, you know, mm -hmm. speech language, uh, ABA, whatever else it might be. Um, but at the same time, they end up leaving those other types of supports, right? The kinship, the culture, mm. the language. And so you have to make this really hard decision as a parent to be like, okay, what supports do I need? And what supports does my child need? And what supports does my family need? And it's a tough decision because you have to leave your community based on, mm. because of jurisdiction. And so the jurisdiction, so in Canada, most uh, autism services are provincial, right? Right. And yep. on reserve, they're all governed by the Indian Act. And the Indian Act is federal. And so, mm. so technically, it's supposed to be the federal government's responsibility to provide those services in our communities, and they don't. I see. And so what happens is you have families who need to get services, so they apply for the province, but sometimes the province doesn't approve because they have a reserve mm -hmm. address, so they have having to leave, or they just don't get services at all. Now, this is kind of being solved with Jordan's principle. So Jordan's principle mm. is for all First Nation children that are status off and on reserve. And it's mm -hmm. had a lot of good impact, which I'm really grateful for. But we need to start looking at jurisdiction and how do we resolve that issue? Because a lot of other children are still not getting the services that, they're, that they need. And so they end up suffering needlessly. Well, what is Jordan's principle? I've heard of this and I don't know enough about it. So I won't get into the details about okay. kind of where it comes from, other than the fact sure. that there was a child, I believe, in Manitoba. His name was Jordan mm. River. Anderson, I believe. And okay. he, um, he ended up staying in the hospital for like two to three years when mm. the federal and provincial government were arguing who was going to pay for what. Mm. And he ended up passing away in the hospital because of that. And so uh -huh. instead of him going home with his family and spending time with his family, he stayed in the hospital because mm. these two governments just argued over who was paying for what. And that was the only wow. problem. And so that now was out of that which I'm really grateful for. And I think it really helps our communities is Jordan's principle is this funding mechanisms that families can mm -hmm. access now on and off reserve for the children. So it's pretty gotcha. wide open with what you can access. So for example, I've mm -hmm. used it. I've used it for my, my oldest son who needed an EA for his school mm -hmm. and they're able to pay okay. for that. They're able to pay for okay. transportation. Um, I've heard of people getting, you know, therapy dogs. I've heard of people, getting, you know, speech language and different types of therapies. Mm -hmm. um, 
and you know organizations have started to apply for it as well so it's mm -hmm. a honestly it's like a, a, a great funding mechanism and mm -hmm. it, i think it's really had a really good positive impact in our communities um cool. the challenge there is of course okay so you get this funding but now you, mm -hmm. you need service providers to come into the community and they won't. Mm. And so there you go. There's that other complex kind of like that conditioning, right? Like that racist, right. I don't want to go there because I fear for this and yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. And so it's about, you have to tackle multiple areas when you're doing this kind of work, right? You can't just mm -hmm. focus on one because as soon as you start focusing on one, it's kind of like whack-a-mole. You get some, <laughs> you know, some good good progress yeah. in this area and another problem comes up over here and it's like nonstop. I don't, I don't want you to sort of, you know, you know, sort of get into any sort of personal stories necessarily about your own community, but I'm, I'm wondering if you can just elaborate a bit on, because we talked earlier about sort of neurodiversity and, and, and sort of that, you know, perspective from, you know, from indigenous culture and, and that acceptance that's there. Um, but then at the same time you say, the disability piece maybe isn't always popular is 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 that is that related to just related to sort of the whole funding issue or or is are there kind of cultural issues around disability um problematic so or? speaking specifically to autism what i'm learning yeah. is that there's a few things happening in our community that are really great so our local mm -hmm. education commission so they actually amalgamated all the different schools about 3 4 years ago so each, so Muscogee is made up of four different reserves. There's Samson, Skin, Louisville, and Montana. And mm. previously, before this commission, each reserve had um, power or like control over their own education. But now yeah. that's been taken and put into another separate entity. And they actually govern all the schools now. So they're all under one umbrella, which is a great thing. Um, because it, it depoliticizes it and it allows them to, you know, share resources and share, share learnings mm -hmm. and stuff. But mm -hmm. at the same time, they actually, and I, I believe this is at the end of the day, a strength, but it does come with some challenges later. So one of the things that mm -hmm. this school commission does now is they actually offer services to children in their, in their schools without a diagnosis. Mm. And so they're really trying to meet the families where they're at. And that to me is a great Ooh. thing. But at the same time, they got to really be mindful and they got to talk to these families that when this child turns 18, they're not going to have the same access to resources. Mm. And they're going to need a diagnosis then because if they want to access, yes. uh, in, in Alberta here, we have H or we have PDD. And if you want to access mm. those, you need a diagnosis. And getting an uh, autism diagnosis as an adult here in Alberta right now, I believe it's about four years if they give you one. Wow. Wow. And so it does come with a bit of challenges, but at the end of the day, I think these children are getting the services they need in that. Um, mm -hmm. The problem there is that those are the only autism services that I know of in the community. So the local mm. health authority doesn't offer them and nobody else does. And so if your child doesn't go to a school, then what happens is they don't have access to that. So like mm. my sons, they, they still live in the community with their mom, but they go to off school off reserve. And so they wouldn't be able mm. to access that. And so what it needs to happen mm. is we need to start adding on to that, right? We need to start being able to do after school services through the health authority or through the band councils or through a separate organization. Mm -hmm. and so that would be mm -hmm. the solution there. And then talking about that cultural piece, I think I, I don't have evidence to support this, but it's just kind of my own belief sure. is, yeah. and I think it's beautiful though. It's like a lot of these families, all of these parents, they, they say, that's my child. I don't need a diagnosis mm -hmm. for my child. 
I'm going to accept my child no matter what. And so what I'm trying to teach them now is that if you do get a diagnosis, you can get those services now. You can get Jordan's principle and other mm-hmm. stuff like that. And so right now I'm trying to help or build awareness around what a diagnosis does, right? Mm-hmm. And I know there are some great individuals in my community that are doing incredible work that are helping in this area because we need it, right? And so mm-hmm. those are the kind of stories I'm hoping with my PhD research to kind of share, right? Because right now, again, mm-hmm. we're focusing on the deficits, but I want my PhD to be strength-based. So what are the good mm-hmm. things happening in our community and how do I share those so other people can learn from that? Other communities, other organizations can learn from what's going well in our community, as well as, you know, how do mm-hmm. we learn and, put, and find those solutions to, to the deficits or to the negatives? So, so what, what, are, what is your research? What are you looking at? So my research is still very much in its early stages. Um, mm-hmm. I'm only I'm in my second year, so I've got ethics. I've got uh, I finished my coursework, and mm-hmm. actually I just learned this morning that I am I got a confirmation of the first community. I call it a Muskogee's advisory autism advisory circle. So MAAC. Right. Yes, yes, yes. And yes. so I want my research to be fully community led. So me being a community mm. member, great, but I'm just one person. Mm-hmm. So I'm mm-hmm. developing this circle to really work through the research process, right from research mm. questions. So I don't have a research question yet. And mm-hmm. those are the things that I'm going to try and work through with this circle to the research mm-hmm. design, to the you know data collection, through analysis, and so on and so forth. And so I'm at, at a really unique position of going from, mm. so right now there's a huge emphasis on community-based research. I'm able mm-hmm. to do community-led research because mm-hmm. I'm leading it. While I'm leading it, I'm being I'm partnering in full partnership with the community, with individuals who have experience with autism, whether it's through the educators or service providers mm-hmm. or even physicians. Mm-hmm. And we're going to come together and craft the research together in a really like healthy relationship-based way. And so mm-hmm. now obviously there's a few areas that I would love to explore. Now these of course are tentative. I'd love to see what what does decolonizing autism look like, right? Mm. What does that look like in our community? How do we explore that? Um, and then also the lived experience of families, right? Because there's no studies on that yet. There's no nobody working with communities or the families and, and saying, here are the challenges and here are the opportunities. Mm-hmm. And, have, and have you, ha- even though you haven't really done, I mean, that's really cool. I love the whole community-led idea. I think that's just, just you know, I think that's that sort of I think we're seeing similar sort of conversations in 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 the sort of the general autism research circles that you know that these that everything right to the from the from recruitment to the you know but to the to the beginning asking those research questions should be really a lot of it should be you know autistic informed from from sort of day one and so I yeah, I really see that that uh, that being powerful have you but have you um you say you want to kind of dig into this in your research, but have you had any opportunity just sort of personally, anecdotally to sort of, you know, hear stories from other, other, other indigenous families? Yeah. So one of the main things I do within that I've been doing over the past few years is like these community engagements. Right. Mm. Um, so I've been talking with people from Muscochese, but I've also been talking with people right across Canada. And I mm. use these type of engagements to really learn. That's my main thing is like, you know, I've had families reach out to me. I've had uh, service providers. I've had 
medical professionals. I've had you know community leaders reach out, mm. and over that time, I've I've learned quite a bit, and I feel like um, it's just there's a lot going wrong, but there's a lot going right as well. And so some of obviously mm. the, the the negatives or the deficits that I've learned about are you know, there are missed opportunities for intervention because of lack of awareness, right? Because mm -hmm. people don't know what autism is, how it looks. And so these children end up going through like the daycare or early education without ever being um, kind of, or without the parents ever really being told that their child might be autistic. And so the child mm -hmm. end up, ends up going to grade one and that's when it finally starts to, you know, the, the teacher kind mm -hmm. of goes in and tells them that, you know, you yes. might need an assessment. Um, yes. what I've learned also is that, you know, like I had mentioned, families have to leave the reserve for better access to services. Mm -hmm. Um, I would argue that there are, you, you also have to leave your kinship supports if you do that. So that's another mm -hmm. huge problem. Um, there are huge, again, jurisdictional challenges, but mm -hmm. at the same time, um, just thinking about kind of the, the strengths is that, Autism in our community can be viewed, viewed as a gift, right? So that ability mm -hmm. to see the world in a different way mm -hmm. is a gift and something that should be celebrated and embraced. And I think this starts even before the, the autism, though, because in our communities, what I've learned is that the child's spirit actually chooses its parents. And mm -hmm. so that child is viewed as a gift, right? a gift from their yes. creator. And then from there, it's up to the parent to provide and guide and support that mm. child through life because that child has been gifted to you. Mm. And then on top of that, the autism can be viewed as a gift as well. Yeah. Um, I've also seen, I've also heard really like inspiring allyship stories, you know, individuals who are coming to our communities for the right reasons, who mm. are in the community doing great work, working with families, mm. working with organizations and mm -hmm. are, you know, just allowing themselves to, do the work that they need to do for these children. Hmm. Um, I've also learned that, you know, the more cultural connection, and this is my own personal story, is that the more cultural connection, the better it is for the child. And an example mm -hmm. I like using is, so me and my son, um, mm -hmm. the seven-year-old who lives with me, he, every morning before he goes to school, we do a smudging ceremony. So we light sage and then we smudge with it. And then we pray. So I have an eagle feather that I pass, you know, back and forth. And so he usually starts. And I, I mentioned earlier, he says maybe one to three words right now. When he starts praying, he, he prays for a few minutes. Hmm. And he's starting to come. He comes out more. I think he's being hmm. more of his authentic self because he's more connected. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we have talked there for one to two minutes. And sometimes I have no idea what he's saying. But I know that <laughs> the creator does. And that's how that really yeah. matters, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and on top of that, so last summer, I had the opportunity to bring my sons to a chicken dance ceremony out of Muskochee. And mm. I won't get into details about the, the actual ceremony because that's not my place. But what I will say is sure. that my sons, they were dancing and drumming and singing. And uh, I could just see like, I could see it on their faces how much they loved it and how much how connected yes. they must have felt. Yes. And so as I kind of move my research forward, those are kind of the areas I'd love to explore is like, what does a sensory friendly uh, cultural event look like, like a powwow or a round yeah, dance? Yeah, what do, what yeah. does that look like? And how do we cool. make sure that these spaces are inclusive of those who might have sensory challenges, who might get overwhelmed with yes. you know, the social element, who might not feel comfortable? 
Um, and I'm really yeah. trying to take what I've learned in ceremony. So Muscogee is actually really blessed. Um, there's a lot of culture and a lot of people who practice ceremony, which I'm really grateful for. Mm-hmm. And so I try and take lessons I've learned in these different ceremonies, whether it's the Sundance or the Sweat Lodge or whatever else. And one thing I've learned about ceremony is that they are a very inclusive space and they're a, ve- a space mm-hmm. you can be yourself, your authentic, genuine self. You don't have to have, mm-hmm. you don't have to have your guard up. When you go into these spaces, mm-hmm. I'm not a, I'm not a PhD student anymore. I'm just Grant, right? And so yeah. what happens is as soon as you hear about the ceremony, that's your invitation. You don't need a formal invite. And to I me, see. that just screams inclusivity, right? That's that, oh, that encourages, yeah. right? So if you show up mm-hmm. there, people are going to bring you in and going to be like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful you're here. And so that, you know, I'll go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just, it's, it, I'm sorry to interrupt. It just, it just makes me think sort of, again, from that sort of autistic perspective, I hear a lot about masking, uh, autistic folk masking and essentially, yeah, um, essentially covering up their own sort of, you know, uh, behaviors to sort of try to fit into sort of the neurotypical society. And, and so I think the most common example is sort of the, you know, this, the, 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 you know, the, what they call the self-stimulatory behavior or stimming or whatever, you know, and, and the common example, which of course not everyone does, but that a lot of people are familiar with is like flapping your hands back and forth. And so, autistic folk will often mask and that and basically resist hand flapping or whatever um in in you know in sort of these kind of other contexts out of fear of being sort of judged or shamed it sounds to me like this is an environment where masking would not need to occur yeah so the the thing about these spaces is mm-hmm. you really want to show up with your heart so to speak right so mm-hmm. showing up as you yourself and not the the mind version of what you think about yourself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's interesting that you bring up masking because indigenous people do it too. <laughs> I have to mm-hmm. mask all the time. Mm-hmm. So there's a different version of yes. me that when I'm in ceremony and I'm laughing, and I'm joking around, um, yes. that feels more authentically me than I'm when I'm doing a presentation or talking with academic folk. Right. Yeah. Because there's different expectations. There's like, okay, I, there's, I call it the res version of Grant, and then there's the institution version. And <laughs> don't get me wrong, it's still me. But I understand that yeah. the humor that I use when I'm with my family or with uh, friends yes. in the community, it's like a lot of people won't get it at the, at the academic yeah. level, right? They'll just they kind of look at me strange. Yeah. And it's and because one of the things that we love doing in our communities is we love to tease. And it honestly becomes one of our, I, I would say it's like a love language. So teasing <laughs> somebody... Like me teasing my wife or teasing my family or even my mom yeah. um, and just like laughing about it is something that we try and do. And it's, it's honestly like yeah. a form of like, like affection. Like if I'm teasing you, just know that I trust you and then I trust being around wow. you. But yeah. I can't do that with the, no, because people I take things, not. Yeah. people take things, they take things way too seriously. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. they're like, oh, okay, this person's a little too different for me. And then different is bad. Yeah. Right. Whereas in the community, different isn't really seen as bad. Different is seen as neutral, like I'd mentioned earlier. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and, you, know, and you say that the masking, and, that, and, and and I think another term I've heard sort of related to that uh, that I sort of heard first in, 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 in the black community, code switching it seems to be kind of a, another sort of phrase related to masking where folks just sort of, you know, basically switch switch the way they engage with folks depending on whether they're in their own community or they're in the sort of more settler kind of white community. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I believe that masking, code switching, whatever else, is really just a survival mechanism, right? Yes. It's really just trying to make sure that you quote unquote fit in, that you're seen as normal so you don't stick out too much. Because if you stick out too much, a lot of people don't like that within, you know, uh, mm -hmm. the mainstream Canadian society, right? Like they don't mm -hmm. want people seen, they don't want to be seen too differently. And yeah. so I'm trying to slowly try and get away from that where I'm, I am seen as different because I'm learning in my communities, different isn't bad, like I just mentioned, but you know, these different survival mechanisms that we have to kind of go through to appease mm -hmm. the, the colonial kind of way of life. It's mm -hmm. exhausting. It's, you know, I have to okay. like use, I have to be really mindful at all times. Whereas when I go back to my community, I can just take that all off and just be myself. Mm -hmm. And so I find myself leaning on my community quite a bit now, right? So I'll, I go out there yeah. for, you know, ceremonies. I go out there for, go see family. I go out there sure. to, to learn how to relax and just be myself. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm turned on too much as, some, mm -hmm. as something else, that's something else that somebody else wants me to be. Uh, that's yeah. when things, you know, start, I start getting anxiety and depression and things like that because I don't feel like I'm mm -hmm. being myself. Mm -hmm. You know, that makes me think of an, another thing. I was talking to a, a guest recently. She's a, a black autistic woman who's married and she's got a couple autistic boys too. And, and uh, you know, she was talking a lot about um, masking and sort of all, all those pieces. And, you know, it's not just sort of, you know, you know, as you say, you know, it's not just like sort of, you know, fitting in or, or sort of to avoid sort of, you know, sort of, you know, overly sensitive folks or ridicule, but there's also the whole, there's the whole survival component of, of, of like actual life or death kind of component, particularly sort of in terms of, you know, interactions with police and whatnot, uh, you know, and I know that a lot of, uh, I, I, that a lot of First Nations folk are also kind of masking and whatever sort of, you know, in, in, in those, in, in those interactions with police. Now you obviously you're going to have them, a unique perspective with your dad being in the RCMP for all those years. But I, the, my question is, and you may, you may want to address some of the points I just made, but the, the, the question I have is, is, is I'm, I'm curious sort of what your perspective on, is on sort of um, uh, teaching your children, some of those sort of pieces. The second secret word is ceremony is around you know uh, sort of survivability I, I know obviously the ideal is we shouldn't have to do this and you know systemic race get rid of systemic racism and all these sorts of pieces but we know we're not there and, and the chances of sort of being there in 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 the lifetime of your children is probably maybe not great as well and so i'm just curious sort of curious what your perspective on that as far as teaching your kids and whatnot no that's a great question so just in regards to my dad and being an RCMP, one thing he told me when I was, you know, getting into my teens is that not all police are to be trusted. And that's mm -hmm. really resonated with me because he knows mm -hmm. he's worked in the system for many, many years mm -hmm. and he's seen what they're mm -hmm. capable of. And so he kind of take that. He did that same approach that I'm trying with my children. Right. So mm -hmm. I'm trying to teach my children. I guess what the world is not going to be built for you. It's not going to be built mm -hmm. for you as you know, somebody who's autistic, it's not going to be built for you as a Cree person. And mm -hmm. so my, my, my sons are, I, I would say all my children, they're at these intersections, right? So, you know, mm -hmm. for myself, I, my intersectionality is, you know, I'm Cree, 
I'm a male. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I'm educated. I'm neurotypical. And so some of these intersections have privileges and some don't. And mm-hmm. so for me, what I'm trying to do is leverage my privileges so that my children have a better life, right? So, the, mm-hmm. so I'm trying to build a foundation within them that includes a lot of culture because that's the one mm-hmm. thing I find myself was the only thing that was the most important thing that was missing for my life. So I did not grow up with the culture or the language or the ceremony mm-hmm. or anything like that. I didn't start doing that until I became an adult. And that's when my mental, spiritual, physical, and emotional health started to get a lot better. Because that was the missing piece. I was really good at physical health, um, mental health. I just, you know, I learned how to meditate and stuff like that. And then the spiritual part was completely non-existent. And so mm-hmm. over the past three, four years, I've tried to really embrace that side, right? And mm-hmm. so for my children, I'm trying to teach them a bit of the language as much as I can, because language is the foundation of culture. But at that same time, mm-hmm. I'm trying to bring them to the ceremony. I'm doing sudging with them. I'm bringing them to cultural events. I'm trying to get them as immersed in the culture as I as I can because mm-hmm. I know that when they become adults and the world starts, you know, getting more hostile towards them, that they're gonna need something to fall back on. Um at the same time mm-hmm. I'm trying to equip them, equip them with you know knowledge, um, mm-hmm. have them, you know, learn how to think critically, the mm-hmm. teach them about different things that have affected us over the years. Like my mom didn't really talk to me about residential school until I became an adult because of the amount of shame that she carried with it. She didn't want to share that. Mm, and so my right. sons know about residential school. They know that their gukum or their grandmother went there. And mm. so they, they have a much more, uh, a, the better worldview than I did at that age, I would say, mm-hmm, but I'm not mm-hmm. trying to do too much with them as well. I don't want them sure. to become jaded right away. So I'm just teaching yeah. them like, okay, here's some ways to practice mindfulness, you know, Mm. here's, you know, here's why honesty is important. Here's why, uh, here's why uh, taking initiative is important. Things like that. Things that were never really Mm. passed down to me, unfortunately, and things I've learned as an Mm. adult, I'm trying to pass those on with the culture though. And with trying Mm. to, you know, make sure that they know that they are free people and as Mm -hmm. free people, they should be proud of that and they should be able to, uh, share that with other people without shame, because growing up, mm. I was ashamed to be Native, right? I mm. I went to off-reserve school, it was predominantly mm. white, and, you know, I'd have racist things said to me, I wouldn't say anything back, I'd have, you know, mm. teachers that would snap at me because I wouldn't do my homework, and stuff like that, mm. and so I'm trying to equip them to make sure that they don't carry the same shame that I'm carrying. At the same time, mm. I need to, I understand I have my own healing journey, because my healing and the more I am able to heal from colonialism, from all the policies and stuff like that, the less I'm going to pass mm-hmm. on, right? That intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. So I'm mm-hmm. trying to pass on mm-hmm. that intergenerational wisdom and resiliency that my parents did while unpacking the trauma and stuff. So I'm not passing that on as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And, and it's funny that that was almost verbatim. That sort of last piece is what one of the, these two brothers were saying, because they're both, I think they're both around your age too, and they both have you know kind of young kids. And in fact, they they brought two of their kids to the to the to the session, which was just wonderful as well. But um, you know, he uh, he was talking about sort of how um, uh, you know he was he's the and it's, and it's probably I imagine this, it's your, the same for you. The, this is the first generation of a family that hasn't been in residential schools or hasn't been, you know, directly in, in those schools. And so, you know, this is the first opportunity for 
you know, him to sort of pass down, you know, a, a, a different set of, you know, I guess, um, uh, I guess what you say, the, the intergenerate to, to be able to do that intergenerational resiliency and wisdom and pass down that knowledge um, in a, in a way that's sort of, you know, uh, free from, you know, some of the effects of that trauma. I mean, just the idea, I mean, just the piece that you just said about sort of telling your being, your boys being able to know that their grandmother, you know, was in residential school, whereas maybe you might not have, you know, been aware of that and as a child and therefore, therefore you would have had a perspective on, on, you know, sort of the behavior of these, these, these elder folk in your life and, and sort of with no context to kind of, you know, kind of put that all together. Whereas, you know, these kids are going to have sort of, you know, just, a, just potentially, you know, a, 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 a new road, a new path. And so I, uh, I, I, I think that that's really, really interesting. Yeah. So like my children are still gonna, you know, have challenges and struggles and things like that sure. of that nature, but they're going to be much better equipped than I was. And so I'm really grateful for that because when I think about residential schools, um, and I think about the children's experiences within that, and then I think about my son, my seven-year-old son who mm -hmm. is not verbal, he probably would have mm -hmm. been killed, right? That's just the honest mm -hmm. truth. Like he would not have survived. Mm -hmm. And I also mm -hmm. think about the Hobima residential school. So the Hobima residential school had a inviscerator. Now tell me why a school has an eviscerator, right? And there's children there. What what is an eviscerator? It sounds it's, horrible, but is it? It's like is a, it those things that sort of grind up to grind up like chickens and whatever. No, they don't grind up. They that? they they heat them up, and so you throw things in there, and then they eviscerate. They turn into nothing. Oh, so like and okay. so right oh now gosh. there's this. Oh my gosh! No, so right now there's this. There's all like, hey, we're finding all these graves. You know, there might be 93 yeah. here or 700 here. Sure. That is a low estimate, I'm telling you right now, because yeah, everything yeah. the government's telling you is always way lower than what it really is, especially when it comes to indigenous of course, people. Yeah. yeah and yeah. so I'm thinking about like my children and their experiences and how my, like my son would not have survived, right? He just absolutely. And so I'm really, and my mom always mm -hmm. tells me that she's really grateful that she had to suffer. So we didn't. Wow. And so her suffering, and she made a really good life for herself afterwards. And a lot of people don't, unfortunately. A lot of people take their trauma and they get into, you know, drugs and addiction and all this dysfunction. And my mom just didn't. She's yeah. like, no, I'm, I'm absolutely, I have a family to raise. I'm going to not get into that lifestyle. I'm going to raise my family. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. It was never perfect in any way our shape or form like we still yeah, we still struggled yeah. and there's a lot of challenges but the fact that she was able to still show me compassion which a lot of parents mm -hmm. unfortunately don't because they they never learned compassion growing up because of the priests and nuns she was able to really break a generational curse that should have started with her she was able to break it wow no that's amazing on her part i i'm yeah, I'm just I'm trying to grasp sort of the idea first of this eviscerator thing is 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 certainly you know an image now in my head and and of course that you know for sure if they were just literally you know and I, and I know we we don't have any sort of 
you know, facts because, you know, the government wouldn't really, would, would, the last thing that they would do is sort of release those kinds of details. But, um, you know, the idea that, you know, you know, going back to that 93, um, uh, and, you know, and how many more were just, you know, essentially, you know, well, cremated for lack of a better term and, and not buried or whatever. And wow. Um, what I was wondering about sort of, um, well, I kind of, I don't, we don't have to really get into it. And this is more of a rhetorical question because I don't think anyone would have the answer, but I, I wonder about how many, you know, how many folks, you know, that were potentially autistic and had other sort of, you know, intellectual developmental disabilities, you know, you know, uh, were, were in these institutions and, 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 and what that experience must have been like. And I, I, I don't even know if it'd be possible to research that history, would it? No, unfortunately. Like, so right yeah. now the church won't even give up records for Right, everything. yes. And it's one of the asks. Yes. So they're currently in at the Vatican, right? So we have the three different groups, Inuit, Métis, First Nations. Yes. So they're asking them, yes. release these, and they won't. Yes. And they won't yes. because there's just so much dirty, like, disgusting history within that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you hear stories of, like, some of these children getting pregnant. And then those children going yeah. missing, right? And stuff like that. So, yeah. like, whatever you're thinking about residential schools, it's, it was a lot worse. Because, Way worse. Because yeah. they're not, again, yeah. I'm like, I need to reiterate this. They weren't schools. They were institutions. Yes. They were prisons. They were torture chambers. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we got to stop using that term. I guess we're just using that term because, well, the government wants us to. Wow. Um. Something uh, this this made this might digress a bit from what we're talking about, but there was a, a term you used when we kind of chatted before the the podcast a, a few months back, and I, I wanted I want to know if you could just tell me a little more about it. It was you you, you described, and I forget what you said, so I'm hoping you can do it again. Uh, this concept of a of a cultural chasm. What was that about? Yeah, so there's a cultural chasm or chasm that kind of happens between like indigenous peoples and the mainstream Canadians, right? Mm. And that chasm really starts with um, really starts with colonialism and how that has made these two groups as separate as they can. So, mm. for example, um, I often say reserves. You know, reserves are essentially at the end of the day they're just concentration camps. You know, mm. we need somewhere to put the the indigenous people, mm -hmm. so let's put them on the reserve. Actually, uh, Hitler actually got his ideas for concentration camps from reserves. What? And yeah, and so even apartheid in uh, South America was based on the reserve system here in Canada. Wow. And so what's, what happened is that we got put into this little box and there was actually a couple of positives that came out of it. So we were able to retain much of the language because of it mm. and the culture because it was so saturated with so many different people that are also from the same tribe or same, same community. But then there's all mm. the other negatives, like they couldn't leave the reserve unless they had permission from an Indian agent. And so mm. they had the pass system. And so mm. you couldn't go out and find a job. You couldn't go out and get an education unless you had permission from the Indian agent who was appointed from the federal government. And mm. so there was a lot, there was not enough cultural connection between indigenous peoples and everybody else that mm. their the space in between them is filled with so much misinformation, lack of education, uh, 
different attitudes and beliefs that it's hard for them to come together, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of people in the mainstream, they, they understand one area of Canada's history, which is they think is the true history of Canada. Like, and whereas we understand Canada's dark history. And mm-hmm. so I feel like we're always trying to explain things and like it, it's, it gets exhausting after a while having explained things okay. over and over and over. And some people don't listen. Some people straight up tell you that that didn't happen, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so this cultural chasm between the two becomes almost, um, almost like you can't bring them together because of all these different things that it's very complex, right? And the example mm-hmm. I keep using is every reserve almost every reserve in Canada usually has a, like a, a sister town almost. Right. So mm. for example, Wetaskiwin and Muscochis. Wetaskiwin mm. is not reserved. It's, but it's where like the hospital is, all the services and stuff mm. like that. Mm. Um, I would argue that these communities, there's a lot of tension between the two. Mm-hmm. And it's, there's a lot of tension between the two because one side says, I don't want all these, you know, natives in our, in our city, mm-hmm. but that city mm-hmm. is fully dependent on the reserve for their for their resources for their finances because because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. they put millions of dollars into this community you know every every month and so mm-hmm. there's this like chasm between the two where it's like i need to we're dependent on you but i don't like you coming around and mm-hmm. it's like there's so much tension that can come of that yes. and so for and then the, the the indigenous people they get tired of like being treated this way and so there's yes. it goes back and forth and like it gets very complex very quick and unfortunately i haven't figured out what how to mediate that or remediate that and so it's something that i'm thinking about and obviously it starts with relationships but it's getting the Mm -hmm. right people at the table who can make those decisions yeah no and we're definitely seeing evidence of that chasm here i mean we've got slaman first nation and then right next to it is Powell river and um, I think it sort of that relationship is quite similar. I think they're a lot closer than others, and then the Tulaman folk do talk about that connection. And I know just going into the high schools and 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 you know and, and seeing sort of the way the the programs are available and whatnot, you know, there are some positives there. But you know, we we certainly during COVID we saw a lot of um, a lot of a lot of a lot of racism towards essentially their own really their their own community members um you know because you know the 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 villa the the first nation is only you know, four kilometers away or whatever um and uh yeah it's uh it's uh yeah it's 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 interesting and, and then right now there's a, a quite a there's a, a quite a big debate about the name a, a name change for the city um, um essentially at the Powell river um, uh, the area, the, the name Powell is associated with a guy named, um, uh, I, th- I think I want to say Israel Powell, I think is his first name. And I, th- and I think he may have been one of those Indian agents or something on that level. Anyway, he was definitely involved in, in sort of, um, um, uh, a lot of the coordination of, of most of the residential schools in, in, in the province. Um, and so there's obviously a lot of a lot of negativity there, and so they're really looking at sort of the name change, but the racism that's sort of coming out of the idea of, uh, uh, and they're not looking to get rid of the the first name necessarily, but they just would like to add a second name in. Um, but the 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 conversations are just so are so vitriol some of them, and uh, and you know it, it's that that chasm is is really evident there, and we're we're witnessing it right now. So yeah. 
I know. I often, I often hear the argument that, okay, we're erasing Canada's history if we didn't change these things, right? Yes. And what yes. my argument to that is like, that Powell River has an indigenous name and then it got changed already. Yes. So you're erasing our history, actually, first. Yes. And so you can't yep. use that argument against us because I would argue most of Canada is already named. So, for example, Edmonton, mm-hmm. the, the Cree word for Edmonton is a Muskogee Sky Gun, which is just Beaver mm. Hills Lodge. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we like you got to understand, like, our history runs deep within this land and it always will. Mm-hmm. And so when people argue um, we can't change Canada's history, we're racing, we're being revisionist. That's already happened. It's mm-hmm. already mm-hmm. you've done that to us and we're just trying to reclaim exactly. that back. So, yeah, yeah. No, and, 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 and it seems so obvious when you finally kind of kind of put it together. But folks are really 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 struggling to kind of grasp that concept um and it, yeah and it's tough I, I i do think the name change is likely to go through i think there is a lot of support for it but i think i think there's still be a lot of div- a lot of a lot of uh, uh d- division um um uh for a long time to come if and when that does happen which is which is un- really unfortunate um I uh, getting close to kind of wrapping up here. I and then kind of talking about things in sort of a, a strange order here, as 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 just ideas kind of come to my head. I I have ADHD, so I tend to <laughs> tend I tend to jump around quite a bit and 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 get distracted by um, a, a new thought every now and then. Uh, but I'm wondering about um, I'm wondering about, I'm just I, I'm. It really sounds like you're sort of in in the very early stages of, you know, really creating, you know, potentially like a whole new approach to 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 sort of I don't even I don't know if, I don't even know if treatment is the right word to uh, towards you know supporting you know autistic folk because you know I think that whole community led community piece. Um, uh, you know uh, the the you know the, the the focus on culture the 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 whole concept of of the of, uh, I love the whole concept of there's a ceremony and and everyone can come you know and and no invitation is needed everyone is included everyone can be there no matter no matter who you are um, and and just all those pieces just sound like you know and I'm sure you'll shape it as you go along in your research but just sound like just a, just you know it just sounds like we need to dismantle the entire system of support around autism because of all of the sort of racist, sexist, and all the other isms that sort of are are kind of kind of holding it up. Um, someone, an interview I did recently, they they told me about how there there's a lot of, there's a we won't get into it. But there's a lot of discussion around ABA being problematic, and and you know some people think it's abusive, some people don't, and there's a whole you know you can dig into that and learn more about that yourself. But uh, um, uh, this particular individual told me uh, ABA isn't the problem. The problem is, 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 is the systemic racism, sexism, and ableism um, and classism that, that, that was the foundation and that all of this kind of grew out of. Um, and so it just seems like we have, uh, and I think I'm getting to a question or a point, <laughs> but it seems, it seems like we have a, uh, uh, you know, just a system that clearly doesn't work for indigenous folk. It doesn't work that great for for non-indigenous folk either, in in a lot of ways. And and it just seems like, um, 
you're at the beginnings of, of, of what could potentially be just a entirely new way of, uh, of sort of looking at autism and, and, and looking at sort of, and, and, and how we can support it. And, and, and I'm, I'm just fascinated, but excited about it as well. The third secret word is community. Yeah. So I'm not creating anything. What I'm doing is I'm no. showcasing and highlighting and bringing out what we've been doing already mm-hmm. for hundreds of years. Right. Exactly. And yeah. so yeah. I'm, I'm really grateful that I have these opportunities to bring that knowledge and experience to other areas like autism, like indigenous yeah. health and stuff like that. Yeah. But one thing that I've learned is that all these, everything that's going wrong in our communities are just symptoms. Right. Mm. And so the real, where it starts is within colonialism. Now, mm-hmm. colonialism has benefited a lot of people, right? Mm-hmm. But it's come at the expense of indigenous people here in Canada. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. so for me, our healing and the way forward for us as a community always deals with decolonizing. Now, people mm-hmm. think decolonizing is this horrible word that's like, oh, it's dirty. And it's really not because guess what? At the heart of decolonization, is healing Mm. it's not about making yourself better than people it's not about your ego it's not about you know putting the blame on anybody else it's about us taking responsibility for Mm -hmm. our own healing and so the decolonizing comes with language it comes with there's cultural education cultural knowledge Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. comes from the land comes from you know ceremony and it's really just for me that's the antidote, really. And mm-hmm. that's what we need to do as a community. But then I look at, you know, the autism community and I have to look at like, okay, hey, mm-hmm. what's the antidote there? Mm-hmm. And I haven't got an answer yet. And that's something that I'm trying to work <laughs> through. But I'm sure mm-hmm. it's a part of healing as well. Not treatment. Absolutely. Like I wouldn't say decolonization. You don't go for treatments. But what no. you do is you go to a ceremony, right? And that mm-hmm. can be described as a form of spiritual therapy right mm-hmm. and so autistic people can do those therapies there's nothing wrong with therapy as long as it fits mm-hmm. you as a person and you're comfortable with it yes. whether it's aba or whatever types of therapies as long as you're good with sure. it at a personal level that's all that really matters at the end right yes yes but i've heard of people being kind of you people using culture as a thing to like hurt other people as well right like mm. people who look down at other people because they're not cultured enough or they're yada yada so we mm. kind of deal with the same types of things yeah but at the end of the day it's up to that individual to see what works for them to find mm. a support system and to be able mm-hmm. to access whatever they need to to make them uh, on their own healing journey because i would argue not just indigenous people not just autistic people but I would argue everybody needs to heal in some form or another. This isn't Mm. unique to us, right? I'm sure there's some healing that Mm -hmm. you need to do. I'm sure there's healing that your family needs to go through. And that's totally fine. And we should be encouraging that healing instead of putting shame on it, right? Instead of not talking about it, instead of not being able to to share what's going on. How am I? I'm wounded, right? I'm wounded in so many different areas. Mm -hmm. I should be able to share that. Mm -hmm. And so that's Mm -hmm. what we would have done traditionally. Is like so. That's if you ever go to like one of the ceremonies, it's you become very vulnerable. You mm-hmm. you start to share things in your life, and you and you and you feel like you're being listened to. 
Mm. And it's a feeling. It's not just like somebody's hearing you, but you feel it, right? And so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's one thing I, I, my sons is they, like they, yeah, my son doesn't talk, but he is very emotionally intelligent. Like he feels things mm. at a very high level. I know mm. that because, mm. you know, he's seen me cry and he's come up to me and asked me what's wrong, right? And mm. so he has the emotional intelligence to understand when something's wrong, when something's going good and all these other things. Yeah, And he might not be able to communicate like, like me, like with verbal, but he communicates in a lot of other sure. different ways. And so for me, it's just about totally. making sure that I'm, I'm able to see his strengths. And then later on, we'll start working on, you know, we, this area, like he may need more spiritual support. He might need more mm. academic support. He might need whatever the types mm-hmm. of supports. And so it's really trying to reframe things that I've learned and bringing those mm. to different areas, right? So things that I've been able to experience, like within ceremony or the, whatever, for my community um so it's it's a lot of reframing or uh, in our community we call it restoring that's all it really mm. is that's all we are right it's just the stories stories we tell yes. to ourselves stories that we tell each other stories yes. that we tell about you know how the world works and so trying right. to really make sure that we're coming and we are mindful of the stories and we're making sure that yeah. these stories fit in line with who we are as well really cool that's awesome, Grant. I'm I'm really again uh, humbled and privileged that you you know that, that you came onto the podcast to kind of to, to kind of share what you're doing. I hope uh, I know you're early in your work and and you got a lot of really kind of cool things coming up and a lot of real unknowns that you got to figure out and probably a lot more as you go along. I, I hope uh, someday it could be a while <laughs> when you're done your PhD. Um, uh, you know, I, I feel like you're going to take your time and do it right. Um, that, uh, um, that we, we can have you back on when, uh, when, 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 when all sort of project number one is done and, and we can hear, hear a little bit about, uh, what you found out. Oh, I'd love to. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on, Grant. Yes. Thank you.